There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, everyone, and welcome to DevRaga Personal Finance, episode 110. And in this episode, we will discuss the concept of rent vesting, its pros, its cons, and its pitfalls. Thanks to Monique for suggesting this topic. For those of you that are new to the channel, there are three main aims. The first one is to be educated and improving your financial literacy. It's really important to make sure you pay attention to your finances. And the second aim is to use that knowledge and be empowered. Take it to your credentialed accountant, lawyer, financial planner, so you can talk at a level that you both can understand. And the third aim is to be entertained. Now, just a disclaimer, I'm not a financial advisor, I'm not an accountant, I'm not a lawyer, nor am I a financial planner. Make sure you take any financial decisions you want to make after listening to one of my episodes to your appropriate credentialed advisors. If you are stuck on what to do in terms of broad principles, here are some simple steps to get you in the right track when it comes to saving, investing, and personal finance in general. In my humble view, there are five easy steps which anybody could follow. Step one is pay yourself first. Take 20% of your after-tax income and put it aside. That is your money, never to be touched ever again. Step two is invest that money, ideally into something you understand or want to understand. For me, I understand index funds and the stock market, so I simply buy index funds. Step three is when you get dividends from those investments, make sure you reinvest those dividends back into those investments. The power of compounding is phenomenal. Step four is you've got to do it for the long term. Now, in my humble view, long term is not five, 10 or even 15 years. I'm doing it for 20, 30, if not 40 plus years. The longer you do it, the more money you're going to end up with having. And step five, my favorite, is wherever possible, try and automate those investments. Try and automate your pay yourself money. The more automation you have, the less chances you're going to make a mistake or forget to invest. Now, if you do these simple five steps over the long term, you're more likely to end up with more money than you'll ever need. Money is just a tool. It doesn't bring happiness, but use it as a tool to make your life better, but most importantly, to make the lives of people around you a lot better. Now to the main topic, what is rent vesting? Now, owning a home is a great Australian dream. It's something we all expect to do in our lifetime. The reality is, and I'm afraid to say this, I just don't think moving forward, this is a realistic goal anymore if you want to live in our two biggest cities, Melbourne or Sydney. Because... Housing affordability in Australia is fast becoming a major, major problem. House prices have skyrocketed over the past 30 years, and especially in the last 15 years. And rent vesting is a unique way of thinking about home ownership. Rent vesting 
is when you buy a property where you can afford, but keep renting in a place where you want to live. Now, before we talk about rent vesting, how does it traditionally work? What is the quote-unquote normal way to own a home in Australia? You get a job, you earn loads of money, live in an area you want, and you save for a deposit, then you buy the home of your dreams in the area of your choice, and life is sweet. Now, this is generally how it may have worked for decades in Australia, but this sort of process is becoming harder and harder for younger people, especially in Australia, particularly in the two great cities of Sydney and Melbourne. But in most capital cities around Australia, home prices are going up. And it's a concern. It's a concern that I have for my children. It's a concern that I'm sure that a lot of the listeners have for their children, because buying a home and living in your own home is a very special thing to do. But we need to be a little bit creative in terms of trying to achieve that moving forward. Amazingly in Australia, despite COVID-19 and despite the market crash, ANZ and CBA are predicting a 14 to 16% increase in home prices in 2021 and 2022. Now, that means, I mean, as of stands now, and I'm recording this episode in March of 2021, we are now higher in terms of home prices in Australia than the peak of 2017. So housing prices in Australia have been the highest they've ever been, ever, despite what's happened with the global pandemic. So there's a real fear of missing out. and I think the property prices, even in January and February, have also gone up in all of the major cities. So it is getting a little bit insane. So how does rent vesting work and why is it an alternative form of home ownership? Let's use an example to highlight the point. Amy is an engineer with an annual gross income of $150,000. Amy currently lives in the eastern suburbs of Melbourne where house prices are beyond her reach. Amy decides to keep renting where she lives, but saves up for a house deposit to buy a home in another suburb in Melbourne, let's say Melbourne's northern suburbs, where housing prices are much more affordable. You get more bang for your buck. Amy's dream home where she lives will cost her about $1.25 to $1.5 million. A similar home at a place where she can afford will cost around $570,000 to $600,000, which is much more affordable and possibly has more growth potential in the long term. So with Amy's $150,000 income, her monthly budget is this, and I've kept it very simple because I want to highlight a point. Amy's after-tax income is $8,800. She takes 20% of after-tax income and pays herself first. So that's $1,600. Her monthly expenses is around $2,000, excluding rent, because she lives a relatively frugal life, and that includes for lights, water, food, car ownership, which she owns outright, fuel expenses, registration, etc. And Amy's rental expenses per month is around $1,600, which is relatively reasonable. It's about sort of $400 per week. And therefore, that leaves her around $3,600 left over. 
Now, Amy has, you know, saved up 20% deposit of approximately $110,000 already. So there's a lot of assumptions that I've made in this example. And, you know, when you want to buy a home, one of the biggest difficulties in Australia is to try and save up for a home deposit. So granted that in this position, Amy is in a pretty good position and has a great income. But it's an example that I want to highlight a particular point of how rent vesting may actually work out to be better for you in terms of long-term net worth. So if Amy were to borrow around $570,000, so purchase price approximately six twenty-five dollars and counting for stamp duty, legal cost, etc., her monthly repayment will be around $2,721, assuming there's a 4% interest rate with that principal and interest rate payment, so PR payments, okay, not just interest rates, uh, sorry, not just interest-only payments, she wants to pay the principal as well. Now, she has factored in a buffer for her interest rates. Interest rates around Australia are all-time lows. You can get fixed interest rates of 1.99% for four years in some banks. But let's assume a 4% interest rate because that's the buffer that Amy wants to have in the rare event that interest rates suddenly rise in the next five years. So this means Amy would have about $879 left over in the bank account on a monthly budget. Now, Amy hasn't factored in the following things. She hasn't factored in rental income for the property that she's going to buy because she's going to rent it out. And the rental income, let's say, is going to be about $1,600. And that's taxable income. She hasn't factored in depreciation, which is around $4,000 per year. That's deductible income. Sorry, that's deductible uh, from your assessable income. And she hasn't factored in the interest on the mortgage which is around $13,000 per annum. And that's also deductible from the overall income. So when she hasn't factored in these things, despite all of that, she's still ahead every month by about 879 bucks. Now, the other thing you need to factor in for Amy is property maintenance, which is around um, $1,152. Sorry, that, that includes the property management, so real estate fees, et cetera. And that's deductible. And of course, the uh, rates, the council rates, etc., which is around $1,500 per annum. And that includes your water sewage rates. And that's also deductible. So on a monthly budget then, this is how it looks like. Total incomings for Amy is around $8,800 plus the rental income, which was around $1,600. Now, I've taken off about $600 for taxation purposes so let's be really conservative and just say the rental income after tax is around 1000 bucks. So her total incomings is around 9800 bucks. And the total outgoings for her is the 20% pay yourself money which is 1600 bucks, $2000 in expenses, $1600 in, in her own rent because remember she has to live somewhere, $2721 in her mortgage payments for her investment property that she's just bought, $221 in property management and rates fees. So our outgoings are around $8,142. So despite the worst case scenario, and I haven't factored in depreciation, deductions, interest on borrowing costs, anything like that, her monthly budget is still in the positive of around $1,258, roughly. So 
what should Amy do with a spare $1,258 per month? This is where it gets really critical. Ideally, Amy should invest a portion of this, you know, perhaps at least 50% of it, and she can possibly use the rest of it for luxury expenses. Spending all of the extra money that she gets from the positive rent that she gets from the investment income, uh, the investment property, beg your pardon, is an absolutely disastrous move. In fact, what I would probably do and what I probably would suggest that anyone who's doing rent vesting do is you take all that income that you have left over of $1,258 in this example and invest it, invest all of it. Now, let's see what happens if Amy invested that amount in a broad-based ETF with an expense ratio of 0.3%. And that's relatively high. Again, I've made it, I've made it conservative. I've, I've, I've made sure that I haven't made assumptions which are not too, not too easy. So, and let's say she just does that for 30 years, returning an average of about sort of 8%. Where would her portfolio be? Well, if she just did that, she'll have $1.68 million. And in that time, she should have also paid off her investment property home loan as well, provided that Amy is quite disciplined. And, you know, 80% of financial decisions that you make is behavioural. 20% is about what knowledge you have. So what about the home loan that she gets? I mean, should she really factor in the rental income that she may get when borrowing money for an investment home loan. Now, in my humble opinion, I think Amy should be factoring no rental income when borrowing for an investment property. And this is because it's important to factor in the worst case scenario. COVID-19 is a great example of eviction moratoriums in place, which means tenants and landlords had to come to an agreement for rental reductions... And in some cases, tenants did not pay rent because they couldn't. They lost their jobs. They lost their livelihoods. So it's really important to factor in no rent when borrowing any money. So when rent does stop coming in, you're not forced to sell the home or ask for a mortgage holiday. Now, the banks will often factor in rental income because they want to lend you more money. Because if they lend you more money, they make more money. But when I buy my investment properties, I do not factor in rental income. When I buy my investment properties, I factor in 1% to 1.5% interest rate buffer in the rare event that interest rates rise. And when I buy my investment properties, I always borrow principal and interest payment interest rates. I don't just do interest-only loans. Now, I'm in a slightly unique position myself because I've paid off my home loan and all that sort of stuff and I don't have any sort of consumer debt, so slightly different. But I think it's still worthwhile considering and being conservative when you're borrowing money for an investment home loan. Now, in Amy's case, what happens after 30 years? The investment home has produced a steady rental income which has increased with inflation of, let's say, 2% per annum. She has amassed $1.68 million in assets outside of a super. And in 30 years, 
her super balance is probably going to be nudging around a million dollars anyway. And we're talking about, you know, Amy being, you know, relatively young, in her late 20s or early 30s. And the value of the investment property increases by around 100%. Now, that's relatively conservative again. So now the property that she's bought is worth about 1.2 mil and she has no mortgage on it. So her total net worth is now around $3.8 million. Now, let's look at the assumptions that I've made for this calculation. It's a very simple calculation. I've assumed that the property is always rented. I've assumed that Amy takes the leftover amount of twelve hundred fifty-eight bucks and invests it in a, you know, low-cost index ETF, uh, and gets about eight percent annual return over thirty years. I've also assumed that Amy has a pretty stable job for over thirty years, and I've also assumed that she never scores a pay rise, which is very unlikely. It's likely that Amy is going to get a promotion or get a better job or get more payment. Her income's likely going to go up. I've also assumed that Amy never buys any other properties. I've assumed that she pays off her home loan in those 30 years' time. I've assumed that she invests all of her spare money. And it really doesn't matter even if she only invests only 50% of that money because she will still end up with about $800,000 outside of a super fund, which means a net worth will be about 1.7 mil, which is still pretty good. And I've also assumed that none of her expenses changes. You know, she's not going to have a partner and she's not going to have kids and all that sort of stuff. So again, the income and the expense side of the equation, I've kept it relatively simple. And I've only factored in inflation for the rental income. I haven't really factored in inflation for the investments or her own income. So there's a few assumptions which I've made, which rightly or wrongly just makes the calculation a lot simpler. But the reality is it's likely she will have more wealth during her retirement after 30 years if she rent vested. But I've just kept the calculations, again, very, very simple to give you a perspective on some of the advantages of rent vesting. Now, this is all a very rosy picture. Basically, I've sort of said you can become a multimillionaire by rent vesting, and that's a pretty big claim. But there is one critical point this scenario misses, and that is Amy will be renting for the rest of her life. And renting means the home is not yours. You're still bound by the rules set by your landlord. So if you want a pet you need to ask your landlord. If you want to install paintings with nails, you've got to ask your landlord. If you want repairs to be conducted or maintenance to be done for the property, you need to wait for the landlord. And if the landlord decides to increase your rent, which almost certainly will happen, certainly in the next 12 months in Australia because of all the you know rental freezes that have happened in the last 18 months, then you have no choice. You either move or you pay the rent. So there's lots of compromises when renting in a property, even if it's for a short term. Now, Amy may choose to buy a home and rent it out 
and then move into it after five or 10 years. And, you know, that has its own benefits of pros and cons and all that sort of stuff. But in those five and 10 years, she has to rent. But it also affords Amy a lot of flexibility as well. So what are the pros and cons of rent vesting? The pros are that you enter the property market sooner. My example, I've not factored in rental income for borrowing capacity, but if you do, you can borrow more and therefore afford a better property sooner. But again, when you borrow money, be conservative. Borrow less than what you can afford. The pros is you can live where you want to live, but also own a home where you can afford. And this means you're unlikely to overcommit this way. There's ultimate flexibility when renting, upgrade or downgrade whenever you please based on life's challenges. So if Amy loses her job, she can go to a share home or she can rent a property that's much cheaper, a unit perhaps, or an apartment. Amy can move around. There's no need to pay stamp duty every time she moves homes. There's no legal costs involved each time. And the way you do rent vesting in Australia is it's relatively tax effective because you've got depreciation, you've got interest and borrowing costs, which are all tax deductible. And you can choose where you want to invest. You don't need to invest in a place that you want to live in. So there's a lot of pros about rent vesting. What are the cons? Well, it goes against the grain and doesn't follow the norm of the quote unquote great Australian dream. Rent money is kind of dead money to some extent. You are helping to pay off the home loan of your landlord if they have a home loan. There's a lack of emotional connection. And I think this is a relatively important point. When I come home after a very long day of work, there's nothing like coming back to my own home. I am happier living in my own home. It's not a rental. It's my home. I can do whatever I want. So that lack of emotional connection when you rent a property is, I think, probably an important factor for a lot of people. You can't renovate, you can't paint, you can't do any modifications to your liking. You need to get permission from the landlord. And of course, this depends on the states. I know in Victoria, the tenancy agreement is very flexible um, and it's probably a little bit skewed towards the actual tenant, but it really depends on your state. And of course, if you're buying investment property, you lose the capital gains exemption. Um, That is, you'll only get the 50% discount, whereas if you bought your own home and lived in it and sold it, any profits are tax-free. But if you bought an investment property, then profits are taxed, uh, but you do get a 50% discount if you hold the property for greater than uh, 12 months, I think it is. So which option is the best? Well, the short answer is rent vesting is likely, in most scenarios, provided you do the right thing by investing and buying the right property, to get you ahead in the property game. And also from a net worth statement perspective, you're more likely to build wealth more rapidly over the long term. The long answer is, It depends. It depends on your preference and what sort of emotional connection you want to have with your home. Some people say, why not rent it out first and then move into it? 
This is a hybrid option, but it's still not the same. Your home is your home. Now, what did I do? I bought my first home. I lived in it. I did not rent vest. I was lucky enough to buy a property in the high 300,000s um, or you know, almost $400,000 back in 2009. And at that time, I actually thought I paid too much for it. And I probably did. And here we are, you know, almost 12 years later, never in my wildest imagination would I have dreamt that property prices would have quadrupled from the time that I'd bought it. From my point of view, and it's a very humble point of view, I don't think buying your first time as a principal place of residence is an investment. It's an emotional decision. It's actually a liability because it's costing you money. There is something great about coming back to your own home and the air smells better, the water tastes better, and the garden simply looks better, even though it might be overgrown with weeds. And that's just a personal view that I have. So that's about it for rent vesting. So in this particular example, rent vesting works out to be great. But essentially, the bottom line and the bottom principles and concept is you rent where you want to live and you buy where you can afford. In addition to this topic, Monique has asked me to briefly discuss about creative ways of home ownership especially for those that feel home ownership is beyond their reach or capacity. So what options are there if you want to be a little bit creative about home ownership? Now, there's a number of options exist. Um, there is a tiny home movement, um, which is, you know, living in a very, very small house, which is often mobile. And the advantage being that it's environmentally friendly, there's lower carbon footprint, it's cheaper, you can get it 3D printed if you wanted to. Now, these homes are extremely small. They may not be conducive to raising a large family, but that is an alternative for people who don't want a traditionally larger home or cannot afford one. The flip side of that is to try and sell a tiny home might be difficult because you really are looking at a niche market. The second option is co-financing a mortgage. This is actually very common in some cultures, uh, particularly in the subcontinental culture or Asian culture. Family members pull their money together and buy one very large home and live in it together as a joint family. Now, the obvious advantage is being able to live in a nice suburb in an expensive city, having a large home. But the disadvantage is you need to have great transparency. You need to have great trust amongst the people in order to pull this off. This may also have tax implications when you sell the property because there's multiple parties involved. And the obvious risk is obviously family breakdown, divorce, which can lead to potential losses and disasters. So it is a very common way of home ownership in many cultures in Australia and also around the world. Um, and co-financing a mortgage is, you know, increases your borrowing capacity because you have multiple people, multiple incomes. So you can potentially you know, buy a home where you really want to buy a home. Now, the other thing is buying in a regional area. So if you have a look at the property prices in Australia over the last 12 months, regional areas, property prices have actually gone up because a lot of the city dwellers due to work from home have actually moved to the country areas for better lifestyle options, more bang for your buck. Now, I have covered 
arbitrage as a financial concept, and this particular concept of moving to the regional areas is called geographic arbitrage, uh, and that's covered in episode 26. If you're interested, go back and listen to that. Now, it's kind of similar to rent vesting in the way that you accept, rather than buy where you are currently are, you expect you buy and move to an area where you can afford and commute the distance if you really wanted to or work from home. Now, this option is not for everyone, especially if there is limited transport options and the cost of transports may be, may be a huge barrier. Uh, the fourth option is buying a home and living in it, but earning an income by sharing spare rooms in the property. Uh, this may have tax implications when you eventually sell the property. Um, now, personally, I don't you know, rent out any of the rooms that, that we have in our home. We've, we've got multiple rooms which, which are still empty, but I just don't feel comfortable renting out a personal space to someone that I don't really know. But if you want to earn an income through, uh, through your home, you know, you can list it on Airbnb or do something creative like that in order to generate an income from the home that you live in. But be aware that it may have tax implications when you want to sell the property later on. So those are the four different creative options in addition to rent vesting uh, that you may want to consider um, particularly if you think that home ownership in Australia is starting to get out of reach. And I, and I, and I really think that it is a risk and I really think that um, the next generation of home buyers um, I really do have concerns that if housing and affordability is not tackled in Australia, then things can get out of control very, very quickly. I mean, I speak to a lot of people um, young doctors, you know, that are earning one hundred and fifty to two hundred and fifty thousand dollars, if not more, who are unlikely to be able to afford a house in Melbourne or Sydney. Now, if you can't afford a home, earning a quarter of a million dollars, um, I think societally that could be a problem. So it, it is a real concern that I have. And I've got kids and I want to make sure that my children are able to afford to buy homes. Um, I think buying a home is a very unique thing and I think people should be able to afford to buy it. But I just get worried of what's happened in the last 30 years in Australia. Now, that's about it for this episode. If you want me to cover a particular topic, contact me via Facebook and I will do my best to factor it in this episode. Please make sure you give me a five-star rating on Apple Podcast or any podcasting app that you're using. It really does help promote the podcast so more people can download and listen to it. And if you really want, leave a review, and I might read it out live in one of the future episodes. Remember to like the DevRaga Facebook page, shout out to comments and questions or topic suggestions. Share this channel with family and friends. Uh, you can download it via Apple Podcast or all the major podcasting apps. I'm part of all of them now. And always pay yourself first. Take 20% of after-tax income and put it aside. That is your money, never to be touched ever again. And learn about the concept of rent vesting and creative ways to own a home. It may just work out better for you. This is Devraka Personal Finance, episode 110110, that is. And as always, please make sure you stay safe. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.